0: Right. Good afternoon and welcome, everybody. Um, uh, there's a s- special joy in introducing to you my good friend, uh, Dr. Kfir Cohen. Um, Dr. Cohen's, uh, Dr. Cohen is the academic director of the Globalization and Sovereignty Cluster at the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem. He took his uh, PhD from UC Berkeley in comparative literature, and um, most generally he is dealing with issues of globalization in Israel, Palestine, and France, and his forthcoming book on the topic is to be published soon in a year's time with Versa. Right. Uh, Dr. Cohen, thank you for coming. The title of the talk today is, Israeli Literature is Global Literature. Right, broadly defined, broadly. so
1: we'll see what that means in a moment. Thank so thank you all for coming. This is never obvious. Um, and I'm very happy to be here with you, Yakov, and with you as well at this seminar. Um, okay, so what I'll talk with you about today is, as the title of my talk is Israeli Globalization as Global Literature, and I will explain what I mean by it in a moment. And basically my, under, my broad argument is that um, I'm trying to give an historical account of Israeli, later on, the broader project of Palestinian and French literature vis-a-vis globalization. Uh, these are changes, and we'll get to them in a moment, that happened all over the world and Israel as well. And my position is that you can no longer understand Israeli literature only vis a vis what's happened locally, and definitely not only vis a vis the Israeli Palestinian conflict, which has been, or Jews and Arab relationships, which has been the center of uh, kind of Israeli post colonial studies since the 90s. So this is a very kind of different position from which I'm coming to understand Israeli literature. Uh, So the history that I'm drawing in my book uh, begins from from the 1940s to the present, and I divide them basically to two periods, from the 1940s to the 1990s and from the 1990s to the present. This is not the current history. Current history usually of Israeli literature divides them into periods of 10 years or so, to decades, from the 1940s to the 50s or 60s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and then 90s. Uh, And I argue that uh, you can no longer periodize Israeli literature in this way, so I have only two periods. And I distinguish these two periods by, uh, by the social structure of Israeli society. And I understand, and the, kind of the talk that I will give will try to explain the relationship between Israeli social relations and Israeli cultural production, specifically literature. And I argue that in the first period, from the 1940s to the 1990s, we have a social structure that I might call a statist structure, which is a liberal in the sense that the state itself is not separated completely from civil society, as you might have in Western Europe and the U.S. And the notion of uh, liberal autonomy and also aesthetic autonomy is not possible in Israel up until the 90s. Therefore, it kind of characterizes the period as a non-liberal period, where the question of uh, individual autonomy as well as aesthetic autonomy is a problem for Israeli society in general, and specifically for cultural production in literature. And from the 1990s onwards, with neoliberalism and privatization and globalization, you begin to see a separation of state and civil society that inaugurates the possibility of uh, liberal autonomy as well as aesthetic autonomy. So to show you a little bit what I'm going to do, I prepared for you this map. that will show you how, um, what, we'll, what I'm going to do, so you'll have a kind of a picture in your mind. So I left the Palestinian part there, because if you want, we can talk about that as well. I just wanted to show you that it's larger than Israel. As you can see in the left column, you have this axis from the 1940s to the 90s, which I call heteronomy, and I will explain, that and moves to the bottom, which is 1990s to the present, which I designate as autonomy. So the burden of the talk will be to explain how we move from one to the other. But I will make also not only a vertical move, but also a lateral one. So to compare Israeli literature to Western Europe and the U.S. So do you have that on the right column of your map. And this is where we have to explain what is happening in Europe from mid-18th century to the present and to see how Israel differs from Western Europe and the U.S. up until the 90s and why it's different from it and how it becomes not identical but equivalent. And we'll try to explain that as we go. Uh, so it's really like a night move, one, two, three. Uh, so this will be the move that I will try to make today. So many people talk about globalization more or less from the 90s, and it's become a very widespread term. But there are two broad definitions of globalization, one exoteric and one esoteric. The exoteric term and widespread is that globalization is anything which is a wo- worldwide phenomenon, and it's usually immigration and trade people that you follow, movements of people and movements of commodities. If you have this kind of definition, you can talk about globalization since the beginning of time, more or less. People will argue, as André Guten Frank does, that it begins 5,000 years ago. Some Marxists talking about the advent of capitalism will place it in the 16th century. Others will place it in the 19th century. So you have different kind of competing designation of what globalization means. I use it in a more esoteric term, and I designate it more recently to a much more recent phenomenon, which is the late 20th century, and I identify it with the spread of capitalist social relations all over the world. So for me, globalization is identical with uh, what is called sometimes neoliberalism or late capitalism, which is to say the spread of particular social capitalist relationships all over the world, not simply commodities. Uh, And this is how I understand it. And this is what comes to designate Israeli society from the 1990s onwards. And this will help me. Now, I am interested in this because um, what is unique about capitalism, differently than other social formations before it, is that it's a particular social formation that subordinates human uh, ends to human needs, human means. And I will give you just one uh, brief quote from Marx, uh, from Capital. You don't have that in your quote. It's a very short one. It says, it is a form of production, not bound to a level of needs, laid in advance, and hence it does not predetermine the course of production, in the sense that human political needs or human political ends do not predetermine the way that we live our lives. This is what happens with Capital. It subordinates uh, political ends and social ends to the production of value which in, in itself does not have an end in itself. It's a, a perpetual, endless production of value and profit. And this is, if you want, defines a little bit what's happening in Israel since the 90s with the uh, what's happening with the shift in designist Zionist uh, kind of model, uh, which I will explain. So it's interesting to me because I think that if you want to understand the political significance of Israeli literature, Israeli cultural production, it deals with this crisis of politics or process of political ends, the fact that it is no longer simple to say under this shift to capital what exactly are, if you want, the political ends of the Jewish people in Israel, if you want to understand it this way, or the political ends of Israeli society. This is the crisis that in a way the state itself is trying to answer with its own form of extreme nationalism, if you want. And other uh, political projects that are trying to fill in the void with the end of an older form of Zionism. So, this is uh, my political interest in this. So, to move to the talk itself, I will do, I'll try to designate kind of what is the, what exactly is uh, unique in each period, give two or three examples. I warn you that I won't give too many examples from the literature. I will more give you kind of the theoretical and historical framework of history, history itself with three or four examples. You'll see what's going on there. So the first period, as you see in your map, it's from the 40s to the 90s and designated by heteronomy. The distinction between heteronomy and autonomy is usually defined by a differentiation to freedom. So a heteronomous subject, if you go back to Kant, for example, is that subject which is determined from the outside. It is not free. It is uh, is not self-legislating, as would be an autonomous liberal subject. Uh, And therefore, if for... A liberal subject, the freedom of the subject, is there before it enters the world. It is, not, it is a property of the subject. For a heteronymous subject, this freedom is not there, right? It is, it is not, it's not a property of the subject. It is determined from the outside. The usual understanding of heteronymous subjects, if you want, by a kind of enlightenment critique, will be the religious subjects, for example as it will be that subject which the, the, the clerk, the rabbi, the priest will tell them what to do. And therefore, if you take an enlightenment position, you will want to free that subject from any external determ- determination. Now, how that relates to Israel. For, I will argue that Zionists from the 30s onwards, with the establishment of, of one of the labor uh, parties there from the 1930s, have established a status structure in which... Uh, civil society was not liberal and free as was as happened in Western Europe and the U.S. And what is unique about Zionism, as you, as you might heard the discussion, that usually was a collectivist society. But this is not enough. What is unique about Zionist society up until the '90s was that its freedom, its collective freedom, was not given in advance as would be in a liberal understanding. But it's a freedom that has to be made in the world. Unlike the freedom that is given to the, to the liberal subject that is there before the entry into the world. This is the big difference for me. So what characterizes Israeli society, and specifically literature, is that it tried, in the, specifically in the 40s and 50s, to write such novels in which the collective freedom itself will be made in the world, usually by war or settlement. This will be the most classic, typical novels. Uh, and then later on in the 60s and 70s, there is a crisis will get there as well. But what characterizes this period is that the collective freedom itself is not given in advance, but needs to be made in the world itself. This is why Israeli literature, as well as civil society in Israel, is very different than Western Europe. It it brings us to the aesthetic relations themselves. If European literature, Western literature, uh, Western European literature, is designated as autonomous and free, that is to say it's an act of liberal subject that can write literature without any purpose or political end, Israeli literature up until the 1990s is designated as heteronymous literature. It has always had the political end with which it has to kind of contend with. And if you are a Zionist or a statist, I will call this is a very clear to you. You write novels that promote certain kind of Zionist ideology. If you are a liberal subject for our liberal writers such as closer to a, a B Yeshua, Mosozi, Sha Kohen, and a few others who try to contend, with this kind of a collective freedom that is made, you are trying to write liberal novels, liberal subjects, or individualists, as you might hear the, hear the conversation. But I argue that these attempts usually fail. These are attempts that try to imagine kind of a different kind of political project grounded on the individual, or grounded on a freedom given in advance, but this is usually promoting a negative political project that cannot succeed. Only in the 1990s you start to see positive liberal subject that do not have to negate Zionism to be autonomous and free. And this changes the entire Israeli literature kind of um, imaginary world as well as how do you write a novel from the 90s and we'll get to that later on. Just to give you a sense of what does that mean to write a novel in which freedom is made, I'll go to one of the classical examples from um, Moshe Shamil's he walked in the field. This is not the, it, although it became very well known, it's not the most typical Zionist novel. So the most typical Zionist novel was written by a couple, by Alexander and United, United It's called A Land Without Shadow. There you see a much more kind of an, an attempt to build a, uh, a kibbutz and uh, what's happening there up until leads to the, the, the independence, uh, the war of independence, but this is more of a known novel. Since it's a small room, I will let you read it. Just read the, the number very three. It, uh... What? read aloud, to have it. Uh, oh, you quoted. Okay, fine. Okay, so I'll explain. So this is basically a short monologue, a very chilling monologue, of one of the main characters in the novel named Rutke. And this is, she remembers what happens to her when she ran away from the kibbutz to Tel Aviv. There was this crisis. One of the children in the children's houses died, and she decided that Zionism and, and the kibbutz is not for her. She runs to the city. And then years later, she remembers this period. And... Of course, she regrets running away to the city, and she comes back to the kibbutz. And in a way, uh, she is the carrier of Zionist ideology, most explicitly. And she thinks about it and comes to define what kibbutz life means. So the kibbutz, she says, is not a cooperative for this or or that matter of life, nor even for all matters of life. It is something rather that melts together its members and runs them and turns them into a new essence, a new quality, a new order of life. Therefore, in the kibbutz, a man must accept not only life, but death itself. The kibbutz leads man from ashes to ashes. There is no way out. There is no way out for those who seek to be saved from elsewhere. The kibbutz has the duty to raise children. Will it approve then of those who will take their children out of this collective? The kibbutz has the duty to raise children at its home, with its own means, with its maids, with its own mistakes, with its own tragedies. And the first children must pave the way for future generations who will necessarily follow. So this, if you want, is kind of, the kibbutz is that not simply uh, collective, it must make its own way of life. And, in, and for me, it must make its own freedom. People, they are not free in a way that their freedom is not given to them in advance. They have to make this collective freedom, and therefore they are heteronymous subjects. They are bound in advance to this political project. Uh, and they have to make their own freedom. I chose another example to bring it closer to the notion of aesthetics and individual autonomy, there is a moment there where Rutke's husband, Vili, is coming to bring her back to the kibbutz. And uh, she w- wants, while she's there, she is living with an artist, Yossel Uh He's the typical a-Zionist kind of character. He speaks Yiddish. He's an artist. He it has nothing to do with Zionism. He lives in Tel Aviv. And he kind of promotes the understanding that he's an individual. He can do what he wants to do. Uh, And for him, his life is art and only art. And and Vili is kind of confronting him with a different sense of freedom uh, that he brings, uh, as as he himself is a carrier of Zionist values as well. And he says, this is number four on your second sheet, and besides your freedom, meaning Yosav, the artist, is freedom from everything. This is your school of thought. You are tired of the kibbutz and already you have in the city a different culture. And apparently through this culture, you retrieve the broad spirit, nefesh, this, uh, the spirit is such. Have you ever seen a spirit? A spirit is such. A spirit is like fire and flame, but if it does not hold on to something, there is no fire and no flame. And what? And I will kind of uh, butcher it a little bit. And what Vili uh, is trying to say, that there is no such thing as freedom in general. It is not that people are free to begin with or they are attached to something that makes the freedom particular kind of freedom. And for Vili, later on, he kind of uh, uh, accuses Bloomberg said that, that he will fight the war, he will kind of uh, make the kibbutz, but he has to make his own freedom while Bloomberg thinks that his freedom is given to him without kind of attending to these conflicts. And this is very important because this is where the understanding of aesthetic autonomy in the Western sense is negated in the novel, Since that we cannot have neither aesthetic autonomy nor liberal autonomy as you would like to have in the city in Tel Aviv and not accidentally this kind of alternative political project is attached to the artist. The novel, of course, rejects this understanding and moves back to the kibbutz with its own problems. But this understanding is there embedded and rejected. Uh, Now, in the 1960s and 70s, I said, there was an attempt to write novels that would be usually modernist novels that will try to imagine characters that will be somehow separate from the Zionist collective and they will be somehow individuals. Uh, My sense is that this project has failed from two reasons. One... Historically, there was no other political project that will compete with Zionism, and this is the weakness of the left. Ever since, there was no other political project that could compete with the notion of make of freedom that is a product of making, up until the 90s, which is replaced, I will say, by capitalism. And this is where all these projects are trying to be imagined in the literature, but only negatively, only to. Reject Zionism, but never to offer anything positive. Therefore, they usually end in catastrophes and tragedies, and they always propose a negative kind of project that fails. Okay, so this is the first part. Now, here I would like to make the lateral move to Europe and explain that if you want to understand what is happening in Israel, in the 1990s we have to understand something about capitalism in Western Europe. So this will be a bit more technical, and we'll move to three or four quotes in which I will explain I will move from economics, politics, aesthetics, and philosophy just to show you the link between these things and how eventually they will help us understand literature of the 1990s. So here I'll move much more closer to the quotes that you have. Just a second. I will begin with Marx and a reader of Marx by the name of Moshe Postone. Uh, He wrote his book uh, in the early 1990s after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And in a way, he's uh, profounding a non-Orthodox reading of Marx, which does not locate uh, capitalism on the basis of class, but rather simply on the production of value. It's broader than this. And for us, it allows me, at least, much more leeway in understanding what is capitalism. And briefly, I would say that if up until... The, the advent of capitalism you have very different kind of social formations coming before it but you can also say that all of them have something unique shared between them which are they are not capitalist and most post-ton the is Marx trying to say that you can characterize all these social formations by what he calls direct forms of domination The clearest one will be master and slave, king and subjects, feudal lords and their subjects, in the sense where domination is direct and within the world. You know exactly who runs the world, by which political standards, political values, and this is how labor and everything else is distributed. With capitalism, you have a shift to what is called abstract domination, in which labor is no longer dominated by a particular group, or by a particular sovereign or kind of power, and it is abstracted and becomes simply a measure of value. At this moment, you have the separation between those conditions that make you who you are and who you are. Let me read the quote, and then we'll see exactly why I'm going there, because it will be the connection to all the passages. So the structure of abstract domination is coming up with capitalism, constituted by labor, acting as a socially mediated activity, I know it's hard here, it does not appear to be socially constituted, Rather, it appears in naturalized form, in the sense that you don't know who exactly is running the show. Its social and historical specificity is veiled by several factors. The form of social necessity exerted exists in the absence of any direct personal or social domination. This structure is such that one's own needs, rather than the further force or other social sanctions, appears to be the source of such necessity. Right? so instead of something in the world that tells you what to do you believe that the world is there is an objective structure to it you believe you have certain needs and you follow them and therefore those conditions that make you who you are the structure of domination is then veiled or absent and there is another quote here that helps he says the form of social contextualization characteristics of capitalism in one is one of apparent decontextualization in which you have a world in which the connection between you and those conditions that make you who you are are absent. You always need to find them, articulate them. And we'll get to the sense of the search in a minute. Now, this brings about then a very particular kind of political problem. Because if you have those kind of coming about with capitalism and liberal democracy not by chance, and Hegel attends to this as well, where you have now individual subjects that sense you as they are not dominated externally, Heteronymously, but something from the outside, they believe that they are free and are free to follow their own personal interests and only their personal interests. And therefore, you begin to have a political problem of what will bind all these people in civil society to a political project. If those conditions that bring them together are absent, they indeed believe that they are completely free from them. Right? So Hegel, in his kind of theory of the state, attends to this problem. Let me read the, the second paragraph first. He says, A situation arises in which, the, in the bottom, in which the particular, my particular interest is to be my primary determining principle. Let us say, this is what I do. I follow only my self-interest in civil society. But I am, in fact, mistaken about this. Sure. Since while I suppose that I am adhering to the particular, my interest, the universal and the necessity of the connections between particulars remains the primary and essential thing. I am altogether, then, on the level of semblance, which is a fancy word for appearance in German, shine. And Hegel tries to then give this political problem in the relationship between particularity and universality, in the sense that you believe, since the universal, that which makes you who you are, meaning other people, is not apparent to you, you believe that you can only follow your own right? And therefore you get this political problem, and in the uh, first paragraph, we'll skip it, he says, if you believe that the state is simply, he is, Hegel is an anti-liberal, if you think that the state is simply the, an aggregate of individual interest, then you have a misconception of what is a state. And for him, he's tried to bring back the state as that thing which will bring individuals together. Of course, it's a very people will argue, I think, justly, that eventually Hegel's project is authoritarian, in the sense that you have this kind of civil society of private interest in which the state is trying to compensate for the fact that nothing really brings them together anymore in this regard. So you see that this problem that Israel, I would argue, uh, kind of undergoes today together with Europe, it's something that is there already from the 19th century, and ideas like nationalism and the state and other forms of welfare states, for example, trying to compensate for the fact that capitalism as such is a system with no political ends, but then you have to go to the state and nationalism to compensate for that. Now, Hegel is very important to my argument because he understands this kind of very modern Understanding as a break between particularity and universality, where the freedom of the particular individual is made possible by the absent universal, by the absent condition. Why is this important? Because this is exactly how Kant understands aesthetic autonomy. This is the tie that I'm trying to make. And we'll go to Kant and we'll see how that works. This is number seven. Now, Kant, as you know, in his third critique, is trying to distinguish aesthetic. Uh, Judgment or aesthetic objects from both kind of uh, conceptual judgment and from practical uh, judgments or from conceptual thinking and practical um, uh, making. And he is defining what is an aesthetic judgment this way. This is the first quote. The power of judgment in general is the faculty for thinking of the particular as contained under the universal. So the same terms are used. If the universal, that for Kant is the rule, the principle, the law, is given in advance, I would say, then the power of judgment, which subsumes the particular under it, is determining. I will make a quick connection to the Israel of the first period. Remember, the state subsumes its particular under the political project, right? Does not give them the freedom, this liberal freedom that they have, let's say, in Western Europe. If, however, only the particular is given in advance, for which the universal, is to be found, meaning the law needs to be found, the principle and the rule, then the power of judgment is merely reflecting, which is the aesthetic judgment. This is how, in concert critique, we have the aesthetic judgment, which is the reflecting judgment. That is to say, if the work of art is characterized by the fact that you have a particular that is not determined in advance by any kind of universal law. So just to give an example, if you are a Zionist writer in the 1940s and 50s, you will write a novel in which your universal, your end or purpose, let's say the the concept of an end, will determine your novel in advance. You write a Zionist novel. Therefore, people will say that these are not real novels, right? They are mechanical, they are ideological, they are propaganda, right? Because they are, in a way, determined in advance. This was the problem of Israeli literature, uh, let's say, in the 40s and 50s, its reception, right? Because you would see, as if, the ideological ends coming about and determining the work. So in the 60s and 70s, one of the ways to kind of produce artificially aesthetic autonomy was to cut off the the characters from any kind of Z- ideological Zionist project, which is why it was a negative kind of project. It didn't have something to replace it with. Now, Kant continues with a little bit. I will continue with it because it's important. And he says, uh, let's read the one, the second one. In a product of art, one must be aware that it is art and not nature. Yet the purposiveness in its form might still seem to be free from all constraint. Right? Seem to be free, free from all constraint by arbitrary rules as if it were a mere product of nature on this feeling of freedom in the play of our cognitive powers which must yet at the same time be purposive rests that pleasure which is alone universally communicable though without being grounded on any concept and this is where kant kind of ties in the idea of aesthetic autonomy in nature because nature is that thing which we cannot attribute to it an end Therefore, you are only imputing an end to nature, but nature does not have an end. And this is the artwork as well. It is that thing that its freedom is guaranteed by the fact that it doesn't have an end. But pay attention that it has to produce this feeling of theming, of the appearance. Remember with Hegel that when the individual is free, you have the appearance of freedom because you don't see what is really determining you. Same thing with the work of art you are producing a work of art that needs to produce the appearance of freedom by kind of hiding the fact that it is determined. If you read the third quote, we'll skip it, you'll see that Kant had a very specific way of telling the artist what to do in order that the work of art will seem free from that which determining it. So I hope you see a little bit the connections between the economic structure, a veiled condition of possibility, Hegel's political problem of a civil society not grounded by any political end, and Kant's concept of aesthetic autonomy. Now, this all happens in the 19th century, so how do we bring it into the 20th? So you'll see, that's why I brought the Derrida concept, and I don't produce a very uh, elaborate connections between them, but I would argue that Derrida has a very close connection, close conception of what he calls a text to Kant's conception of um, aesthetic autonomy. You will see immediately, we will jump to you once you read the first sentence. as how we define the text. A text is not a text unless it hides from the first comer, from the first glance, the law of its composition, as Kant would say, and the rules of its game. A text remains, however, forever imperceptible. Its law and its rules are not, however, harbored in the inaccessibility of a secret. It is simply that they cannot be booked in the present into anything that could be rigorously be called a perception. And hence, perpetually and essentially, they run the risk of being definitively lost. So to kind of go back to literature and kind of sum it together, I would argue that if you would agree that this is the structure of capitalism, that which its conditions of possibility are veiled, its political ends are no longer there that can really kind of move forward a society in a particular direction, you have not simply a text, or what Derrida calls a text and Kant distinguishes as aesthetic autonomy, is not simply the property of texts. It's the property of social relations under capital. And this is what characterizes civil society in Israel and the rest of liberal societies, uh, I would say. Now the question is, the, what I need to do is to show you going back to Israel, and this is what I argue now. That since the 1990s, you begin to see a literature, uh, literature of this kind, where you have, have this once the, this kind of freedom of the individual is guaranteed, Was you begin to see if that individuals who are free, who are, oh, in many times the novels are characterized by a search or by an inquiry. The detective novel is one of the most explicit examples of new Israeli literature, and not accidentally, where you have a character usually looking for kind of, there's an inquiry, but if those novels are more politically conscious, they will look usually for those conditions of Israeli society, those things that are now are absent and now needs to be kind of interrogated and brought back to the fore. And this is one of the biggest changes in Israeli literature, where you have now individual subjects who are free, whose freedom is given in advance, but they are in a political crisis. Therefore, they're always trying to imagine some those conditions that will bind them together in a way. This is one characteristic of Israeli literature. And I brought two examples of this. Now, um, not the most perfect example. I, I would have needed more time to show you how this works in novels, but... I uh, will try to jump into these novels. I will begin with Nir Baram's World Shadow, which is kind of a global novel, one of the most ambitious one written recently, and it moves between Israel, the UK, uh, and the United States. And there, too, you're always trying to, to connect the dots between what exactly brings together all these characters. And at one point, uh, there's a consulting firm in the US that tries to describe the world they live in. And you, once I will read it, you'll see how close this is to what Derrida defines as a text. So we at MSV, which is the name of the consulting firm, were all groping in the dark, which becomes even darker as your business in the global world thickens. No one fully understands who they are working for, which powers stand behind the friendly delegates you meet for lunch, and who stands behind those standing behind. Sometimes it seems that in the multiplicity of candidates, governments, NGOs, private or government firms, multinational corporations and regulators, it is impossible to understand anything we all hold on to a few pieces of the puzzle and the real frightening thing is that there is no one who can fully put it together and Dehuda will say that this is indeed a textual world in which there is nothing there that really grounds it together and with the example of the puzzle that will describe the rule or the determining principle for you and the reigning ideology of post-modernity is that this is the world that we live in in which the, the, you can no longer designate the ends the novel specifically goes against this in a way trying to map Trying to make the reconnection between particular individuals who think that they live in the world without measure into those conditions that make their world. And I would say that in different ways, Israeli novels is are trying to do that also. Uh, the second example is by Asaf Gavon. Uh, in English, she was it was translated as "Crack Attack. In Hebrew, it's Tanin Pigua. And there as well, you have an individual who is accidentally being involved in three or four kind of uh, suicide bombings, and in the middle of the novel he's trying to he begin an investigation into the life of someone who was with him in the cab, and he died and he was saved. So he begins this investigation into what happens to him which and brings him with another Palestinian um, a counterpart of the novel. The novel has this kind of humanist ideology to it, but more importantly, it says something about the crisis of this individual, but, which I think is very important. And what he says here in this topic, I will ruin the novel for you a little bit, he kind of gives uh, what happened to him, I mean, all the people that he met along with this inquiry until he reaches the, the conclusion. But how he understands what's happening in the end is very interesting to me. I thought about myself, I was in a, how I was in a cafe on a weekday morning with a Polish Jew would hire a young guy to murder his wife's lover, and I was here uh, because the young guy's girlfriend has asked me to find out what her boyfriend was doing on the on the morning of the death by a suicide bomber on the minibus on which I happened to be traveling. It's it's the novel is kind of the sentence is long just to give the connection, adultery, murder, terrorist attacks. Nothing surprising about this in Israel. Yes, it it, it happened. It's happened all the time. The surprising thing was me. It was strange that there would should be somebody who linked all these people together. And this is precisely, I would argue, is one of the problems of Israeli literature in this age, in which the connection to other people, which was by the default connection of Zionist literature up until the 90s, where you were connected to other people by default and you didn't want to be connected to them, is now one of the defining principles of Israeli literature. We have individual subjects who are desperately trying to understand their relationship to other people, usually in ethical terms, not in political ones. We can talk about this as well. But this is one of the defining features of Israeli literature today, which is kind of a uh, condition, but of what I call a global conditions of global capital. We'll end here. Thank you. Okay. So let's open up for questions, and discussion.
2: I would like to take Yes, please. I ask something, what yes,
0: about
2: someone like... Um, Right. Um, who seems to me to be writing a form of Israeli literature that you haven't touched on, which is right. one that that links the new with the old, mm-hmm. if you like, and and sees life in Israel and his existence in Israel mm-hmm. um, as a form of continuation of mm-hmm. what preceded his arrival in. 1940s.
1: Right. So definitely, um, mm, go ahead
2: and in his case it's a continuation that's always marked by an absence but it in that he he can't reconstruct his memory he can't reconstruct his family but that's his israeliness right um existing in that temporal uh, continuation
1: right so you won't see it m- mapped into this new period
2: yeah You seem to me to be saying that Israeli-ness is either the the, the Zionistic state between 1940 and 1990, or the the non-Zionistic, globalized state since then. But there seems to me a third third option, which is a wider historical contextualization of what's happening in Israel and their version of Zionism against the diaspora seemed it and can't really ever be escaped for
1: someone like that like Right, so this is where the analysis has to be more nuanced. So it's not that there are some writers, like A.B. Yeshua for example, that will, that will do make the transition, that he will begin writing differently let's say from the 1990s mm-hmm. uh, and there are those writers who do not and then you have to have a more nuanced model of where you have those novels that do continue, that will do change with the time and those who don't then you have um, multiple kind of aesthetic modes. So you want, would maybe want to argue that Abilfil does not make the transition, that he, therefore he's not identified with the new. He's not identified with the new Israeli culture, but precisely with those that do not continue on. He's not part of this uh, new change, and he's kind of staying in his own mode, if I understand you correctly, and I understand his literature generally, that it's the same mode of writing. It does not change. Uh, over time, So you have those writers that might continue to write, let's say, Zionist novels, but you will no longer consider them to be relevant or to be kind of um, trying to understand the present of, Israeli, uh, of the Israeli condition. So but you have to have a kind of more nuanced reading of the novel and see what kind of political problem Applefeld is dealing with. My sense is that it will be more ethical rather than political, but I will have to give a more detailed reading of such novel. But my sense is that he would not make the transition that he will be kind of in his moment without shifting but
2: I see him
1: as Israeli and not that they're not Israeli it's not that there are more Israeli or less Israeli this is, this is definitely not my argument but the sense that what, what kind of political problem is defining their literature mm-hmm. and it might be the case that he's not responding to these changes mm-hmm.
3: Right. It's a text that has not yet appeared in English
1: translation. Right, right, astonishingly.
3: And last examples are two very translatable right. authors and texts. Right. I was wondering if you could also, is there something also in this shift that implicates a kind of translatable right. like global literature is also...
1: Right, wants to kind uh, of appeal to the world. It's an appealing argument. I would say... That um, let's say that writers who try to be more, um, there's this whole debate about world literature. So let's say these, uh, which is in the background of my argument, I didn't get into it today. But let's say you would want to be translated, or you would want to be read in Europe and the US with powerful centers. There is this novel by, it is a study by Pascal Casanova, and she will give an account of how do you get to be a world writer, right? And uh, I would put uh, A.B. Shua at certain points, and uh, Mustafa there at those moments. That they try to kind of import these liberal kind of uh, models and then be translated. So I would not, though, argue that the translatability of them makes them different. So even though you were translated, wanted to be translated up until the 90s, you will still won't be able to produce the kind of novels we see from the 90s. There will still be novels that will be kind of predicated on a negative political projects for which liberal freedom will be denied. For you, but you will pass, you know, if you maybe. You, it's important to remember that while um, if you take the post colonial critique that says that Zionism was kind of a European movement, Israeli literature does not pass as European or as Western, let's say, up until the 90s. It doesn't. Uh, because, precisely because of this political uh, problem that it, that it had, it's kind of grounded in a political structure that does not allow it to write liberal novels. So I won't say that the translatability makes it more global although they are more translated uh, that is globality is translate- oh, you can say that you can reverse it and say that yeah. but in terms of the structure of the novel uh, it is more about what makes the novel it, global Is that though how it thinks about for me about freedom that will make it global for me first of all thank you
4: for a wonderful rich productive and very ambitious and um, project it was really Interesting to, to, to rethink history of Israeli literature through your lecture. My question is, like I'm wondering, I have a few questions. I'll start with one of the periodization. I'm interested why you chose 1990s and, on, and onwards, and right. not, for example, the 1980s and onwards, right, or right. how do you view that specific day period of the day, Right, which right, is right. We think about why already the beginning, both in um, terms of uh, political, uh, change in Israel so right. already in the 80s we see right. the transition to capitalism and also in Israeli right.
1: literature we're thinking about a lot of challenges the rise of the eye right, the feminist project and the Israeli mm-hmm. project right right I will definitely put all those there um, so I will say so why by 9, 19 so arbitrarily you can choose 1985 as the date because this is the date of the emergency plan for economic stabilization and it's marked at that moment where we shifted Israel shifted more kind of uh into uh, kind of a liberal, neoliberal societies. But those privatizations started somewhat already in the late 60s, um, but this is kind of the moment that began. Why not the 80s? Because I think that if you, some people go to, um, uh, what's the no, uh, novel, to the 1977 uh, forced elections, I do, and to the novelist, uh, what's his name? Um, he wrote two novels and died. Um, <laughs> Shabtai. Shabtai, right? Shabtai will be the, the first novel, right? <laughs> so right, right, right. Uh, and then there, people try to understand Shabtai as the beginning of this. I, I argue against it. I think that Shabtai is the end of the first period, not the beginning of the new. It's precise, And then I will have an account, where I have it in the book, but I had to it out. It's there where, for Shabtai you have a sense that it is a completely negative project in the sense that you can no longer produce kind of daily time. Everything is reduced to materiality. You don't have any spiritual, that animated novels of designism up until that moment. And you have this kind of mundane, kind of daily life, completely material. That's the, uh, that's the language that he chooses. And then that has no spiritual uh, thing to animate it. But the shift itself happens only later when you begin to have positive liberal subjects who are free by default. They don't have to negate anything. They are simply free by default. The problem is that they want to be political. They want to attach to other people and kind of understand their life. They want to spiritualize their life in some way, and they cannot, of course. That's why I, the beginning of um, of the 80s is not enough yet. The feminist novels uh, after, in the second period, I would say, uh, will be those as well. The Mizrahi novels, all of them, which is usually not told is that they are grounded by uh, kind of a particular liberal subject who is trying to be political, uh, but really can't. Uh, I would say. Um, so this is why I go to the 90s and 80s.
4: Yeah, no, it makes no sense sorry, it have, for example, It's more like a novel of decay. Right, 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 right. And new right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Um I also have a quick thank you. Um, I'll join you on the phone in saying thank you. Um, and my question is about. I guess I have two meta-questions. And one is about the Israel literature, is, and one will be about global literature, There's, or the literature of globalization or late, of late capitalism. And um, maybe I'll start by saying that not so long ago, a couple of months ago, in New York, we have this thing of a Hebrew literature lab. It's also very small. And Dan Miran came to it, give a lecture. and he, he he in fact he came to tell us that it's um, unfortunate that today scholars of hebrew literature and israel literature are no longer interested in writing historiography right. or on in periodization right. and that um, Very true. and you started by by saying that usually we have you know these um, multiple categories and certainly not um, this argument of a of a clear Break. So, I'm interested to know what prompted you to even enter a project <laughs> like this, um, and whether you agree with Milan. But how would you explain that? That it's been a while since someone right. attempted to write that. Right. And then the other question is, um, as you um, and I think they're interrelated. Um, it, it's a question about whether your project, as such, is is. Global or at least universal in the sense that I would accept, expect expect um, that similar trends happened in other literatures because right. I mean, quoting Kant and Hegel and even Marx in in the background or Derrida's does understanding of the text as a as a universal right. thing. I mean, is that is that always the reaction of Writers to neoliberalism? That's sort of my question. I mean, it's not very well articulated here, but whether it's part of the story you're trying to put, well, that would be a terrible thing to say, to put Israeli literature on their mouth in that sense. Or
1: to... Right. I, so, so I start with the last question. Then. I think it's definitely a global moment. That's why I began saying that this process happens all over the world. And then I, in the conclusion of my book, I get the example of uh, one in each continent, that was the ambition. So it will be uh, Brazil, and then China, the U.S., uh, Israel was already there, in Palestine, and then one more. And then I argue that you see these changes in different places, and they will, I will say, I will kind of argue or bet on that they will play out similarly, that you will have this kind of textual structure that comes about, uh, with the shift to neoliberalism and the, for Israel is not identical to them but equivalent to them in the sense that it's competing or is contending with similar political social problems but giving it of course its own solutions according to the Israeli political situation uh, so in this regard yes I would say that it's by default there and it's happening all over the world uh, so it's, it's there whether it wants to or not uh, why did I um, write an historiography first from dissatisfaction with the one that I've read, and I was unhappy with, uh, with them. And with, unhappy with also the fact that if you think of historiography up until this point, if you go with the decades, kind of each 10 years it changes, all of them are the same, meaning they are different aesthetically, but the, with your category of the period is that they are equivalent periods. And I've read enough to understand that something happened in the 90s that is completely different than what comes before. It's not simply yet another period. So that's why I entered this, because I realized that the neoliberal period is completely different from what comes before it. I think that Mewon is right about the fact that there are no longer any periodization, from this from two reasons. One, it's considered to be a total project, and we no longer like total projects. Right? There's this bias against, don't tell us how it all plays out. We all have individual tiny projects, and we don't want any overarching. Uh, that's a real problem. And second, and I would say, part of what comes about with neoliberalism and capitalism is the fact that it's the that since the 1990s, you have a sense that nothing changes, that what's happened in the 90s, the same 2000, 2010, it's not accidental that people don't write it because there is a sense of the fact that there is nothing that changes with capital. Uh, there is a sense of de-historicization, and people stop kind of understanding w- why, they don't understand the difference. So that's why, I would say.
0: Can I take you back for the, to the political argument for a second? And, so, correct me if I'm wrong, if I understood you correctly... The arc, or the arc of the of the of the argument we're making is that uh, this is in Israeli context. Um, an, an illiberal statist suffocation of the individual, or not even allowing of the individual to pronounce himself, ends up with individuals who are detached from other communal ties, looking for the ties that would place them in the world today.
1: Yeah, I would say that there is a. That if you want to take for example the, the clearest problem of the left mm-hmm. in Israel today the secular left of all, of, as a political project yes. is how do you bring these people together okay. what will bind them together yes. what will be this will be labor's greatest problem what can we offer the Israeli public yes. that will bring them together although not unlike in the past yes. and I would say that the most dominant political project not of the right but of the left is this multiculturalism
0: so mythically. one way of putting it and I, I know it's uh, it's not the style of argument that you would make, but what, an, uh, an alternative way of putting the, a similar argument is that there used to be a meta narrative, a political meta narrative that has been either given up or crumbling or privatized, and then mm-hmm. the uh, individuals lack this uh, organizing framework mm-hmm. through which to identify themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. So, the question, if this is what you were trying to argue, about, the question is, uh, would be, can you please go back to drawing the comparison with uh, Western European mm-hmm. literature mm-hmm. and tell us what is it there that mm-hmm. in a liberal mindset allows the individuals to feel in place, like what are the ties that, and right. the second part of the same question would be, how is it when compared to, how is this literature when compared to other non-Western, non-European literature literatures in which maybe liberalism hasn't really... Um, right,
1: it. so if, I would argue that Palestinian literature follows a similar track. So although, not Gaza, but Ramallah, for example, in contemporary Palestinian literature, is confronted, despite the occupation, with those kind of characters who are uh, having this kind of life that is more and more privatized, and for them, politics, it's something that is external to them, for which they're trying to connect or feel guilty about. Or there are those characters in the novel who are political, but not the main character. Therefore, you have this kind of relationship between the non-political character and those political activists. I read in my um, in my book Adania uh, Shibli's novels that are completely privatized, or uh, Selma, forget her last name, uh, writes in England. Actually, uh, also kind of uh, problems of of private life and trying to connect to a Palestinian cause, for example. Uh, so in this regard Palestinian literature will be similar French Algerian literature in in France will be similar from the 90s onwards in terms of what's happening in Europe I would say that it's both nationalism probably in the 19th century and in the 20th century the welfare state Mm -hmm. Keynesianism that which kind of put bounds and limits on capital and repurposed it in a way give it another end with limiting capital by these kind of collective ends which ends up in the 70s and the nationalism which uh, I think happens in the 19th century as well artificially yes. you cannot really do it but this will be what's happening in Israel today have this kind of political project trying to rebind yes. this kind of society which appears in this kind of uh, extreme way in Israel
0: so you would, you would expect for example the British literature now post-austerity, post-2008 cutting down of, or breaking down of the welfare state mm-hmm. to become more Israeli in a sense
1: I would say that both of them confront the same kind of problem of the of crumbling of any, uh, you would say, a society in which doesn't have any political ends to guide it, and would, would respond to it differently. That's why they're not identical. They're equivalent, not identical. It's very important. Do you find, sorry, do you find it, similar in poetry? Because you were talking about right. novels all the time. Right. I'm interested in whether you see it's the same relationship. Right. I don't. It's true that I don't read poetry in the book and in my training. Yeah. I would say that we have the same similar reactions the sixties and the Tanzakh and others uh, up until the nineties, and from nineties you would have poetry that re- responds to the same kind of problems. Yes, I would say that the film definitely.
2: Mm-hmm. But sorry, if you look at someone like George Eliot, mm-hmm. Matthew Arnold, Ian mm-hmm. Forster. Um, these are 19th century and Edwardian writers mm-hmm. in Britain who are neither working in a frame of nationalism nor socialism nor mm-hmm. a of mm-hmm. and they don't have problems with how their protagonists individually meet each other because they're meeting within what we might define as a liberal mm-hmm. version of individual coming together it, it, mm-hmm. it's a it's a literary version of John Stuart Mill.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what will be the, the I mean? Well, it,
2: it works. It's it, it's um, they're not they're not having an issue of, of how you how you combine individualities. Mm-hmm. They they combine by virtue of a liberal state that recognises the existence of they, those individualities as things in themselves that have that have.
1: Value. I think you will need to read individually the novel, and to see what will be the political solution for individuality because I, my sense is that it will be that you cannot simply have private individuals running around and not having uh, something to bind them and each novelist will kind of pr- put forward a different kind of political ideology to solve this problem of this innate freedom that does not have a political end but uh, you have to refer to specific novels and then I won't be able to do that with you here but uh, that my guess will be that if we take, if we begin with the assumption that these are liberal subjects, mm-hmm. autonomous from the beginning, therefore it's the autonomous literature, they will have the novel will be interested in a political, it depends on the political ideology of, of, of that particular, what will be the political ideology that will solve those mm-hmm. problems but I, you'll have to read specific novels
2: okay, an opposite one Daniel DeRanca Mm-hmm. By Eliot, um, where where her vision of a of a humanness mm-hmm. is what enables her to both see Daniel Deronda as as an individual and as someone that has a right to uh, live as a Jew mm-hmm. um, in what she imagines might be an Israeli state or Jewish mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you get to, to ethnic nationalism, to ideas, you get to a common humanity, uh-huh. which okay. is the linking device. So here it is. A um, la Kant. Right. Uh, she's a cosmopolitan. Right. So and different. I think my version of Mill and Forster and Arnold and whoever would also
1: be... Right, so this will be the political solution to it. Yeah. This will, you can find that in Sami Samechizar as well. So for Izhar, it's kind of a split world. I will come to the example where you have on the one hand this kind of political project that is vested in violence, and then you have this kind of idyllic nature for which uh, everybody is equal, and you can find solace there, uh, but he cannot decide between the two. Uh, And for Izhar, differently than other writers of the 60s, nature is whole, right? You can go to nature and somehow retrieve it as your solution there. So common humanness or the common or the humanity at large will be that solution where... Everybody, uh, because there are other kind of aspects to my, to my argument, basically the, the, in Israel, the, the common political project was vested in inequality. And that is therefore the solutions to inequality is equivalence, some kind of reign of equivalence. So that will be there where all human beings all over the world are equivalent to one another without violence. This will be the solution to the fact that we're all different from one another and cannot live. So this will be the political solution. Humanism was one of them, definitely. So that's probably there. So you see it yourself, right? There is attempt to solve this problem with different urgencies. I don't want to map it one to the other. Israel is different than England, it's different than India, it's different than China. So the political solutions will be different, but the problem will be the same. Thank you
0: for concluding. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you.